Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. News, science, the unexplained, space and the cosmos, exploring our past, our future, and the mysteries of our universe. Taking a critical look at reality and a journey to the edges of human understanding. The future is now. This is Micah Hanks. From the high mountains of Appalachia in a bunker below ground. Welcome one and all. It is the Micah Hanks program. Glad as always to be getting into gear and going in pursuit of the enigmatic and anomalous like we do every week. Listen on demand via podcasting apps all throughout space and time. And of course, courtesy of our friends over there, Hobbs and the gang at the UnX radio network. Yes, still battling a bit of this throat issue. And so hot tea is handy here in the bunker tonight, because as always, we have so much to get into as we expect the unforeseen and go trying to find that every week here on the podcast we've also of course got shoot downs of attack drones we've got the mystery of the x-37b space plane yeah they were trying to get it back up into space i guess it's a ground plane for the time being but many are still wondering what exactly the military's most mysterious spacecraft is up to plus a U.S. Congress UFO update, the return of the range fowlers, and then a little later, what exactly is catastrophic disclosure, or what would that be if it were to occur? I'm going to try and explain why there are some former U.S. officials from within our military who are very concerned about how disclosure might go down and what that could mean if, for instance... An enemy of the United States were the first to release their information about this topic. And I happen to count myself among those who are fairly in the know about this because there had been an article that was published a few weeks back that presented this idea, and all that based on something that was said at a scientific symposium that I attended out there in California, the Soul Foundation First Annual Symposium. In fact, I gave you guys a complete breakdown of what had happened out there at the event right after I returned from attending, but the individual who had really been at the heart of the Daily Mail story that appeared, written by Matt Phelan, he of course also was out there. In fact, he and I caught up and had a drink while we were there. Matt's a great guy. And his article, which was the first really to bring public attention to this idea of the potential pitfalls of catastrophic disclosure, focuses on one individual whose name first came to widespread public attention thanks to the debrief, and an individual also who I met and spoke with at length there at the Soul Foundation event. So I do think I have some context for what really ended up becoming quite a hot term, especially on UFO Twitter, or UFO X as it's now called. So we'll get into all of that and more here a little later, and hopefully my voice will hold out. Obviously, I'm sounding probably about 25 to 30% better than I did the other day, and I'm hoping that will continue to be the case. But first, right now, here's what's happening in the news. The AP reporting yesterday, there had been 14 suspected attack drones that were shot down over the Red Sea over the weekend. That in addition, by the way, to a Royal Navy destroyer that downed another drone that had been targeting commercial ships. And now both the British and American militaries confirming these incidents. The latest really in an ongoing series of similar drone attacks on U.S. warships and also the potential endangerment of commercial vessels that have to sail through the Red Sea, which I'll add actually happens to be one of the world's busiest shipping routes. And hence, although it's the last place many would want to be, many do have to travel through that area. And as the Israel-Hamas war threatens to spread, these attacks have continued. According to the AP, U.S. Central Command said that the destroyer USS Kearney successfully engaged 14 unmanned aerial systems launched from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. The drones were shot down with no damage to ships in the area or reported injuries. So that's good. Meanwhile, also UK Defense Secretary Grant Shapps said that the HMS Diamond fired a Sea Viper missile 
and destroyed a drone that was targeting merchant shipping. The overnight action is the first time that the Royal Navy has shot down an aerial target in anger since the 1991 Gulf War. So not just the U.S. involved here. Indeed, the situation is heating up, and overall, things really are not looking good. In fact, things had not been looking good for the military's secretive X-37B space plane, which was supposed to be embarking on its seventh mission as of Monday, but there was another setback after several that had previously grounded this mysterious space plane. Now, what makes it so mysterious, you may be asking? Well, prior to the X-37B, there was just the X-37. It was originally a NASA project, but it ended up being handed over to DARPA and became a Pentagon acquisition. It was therefore classified once DARPA acquired it. And for many years, it's been in development. Then there was the X-37B, which was the Air Force rendition of it that was developed specifically for these spaceflight maneuvers that are now technically actually undertaken, I guess, by the U.S. Space Force, since the development of the X-37B actually preceded the official establishment of said Space Force. That all said, it's carried out numerous missions, each one getting longer and longer and showing that this space plane can spend a whole lot of time up there in space. And there's been a whole lot of speculation about what exactly its mission might involve. Is it a secretive anti-spy satellite aircraft? Is it doing surveillance while it's up there? Is it releasing secret payloads of some kind? Is it doing something that nobody's even thought of? I mean, these are all questions that really do warrant some consideration, although the military has been somewhat forthcoming about certain aspects of some of the experiments and other things that the X-37B's previous missions have entailed. But we still don't know exactly what all of that may entail. All we know is that effectively it has been grounded again, and it may be later this month before the X-37B is able to get back up into orbit, if it launches, to embark on what will be its seventh mission once it makes its way back up into space. Of course, I've been covering the X-37B over at thedebrief.org probably almost the longest of any topic that I have written about since we launched. That and, of course, the ever-evolving situation regarding UAP. But another topic we've been covering a lot, and which you guys have really been responding to well over there at the debrief, is an old fascination of mine, and one we also cover here on the podcast pretty frequently, that involves archaeology. And there is some new research that I wrote about just this morning, which you'll definitely want to check out, because it involves a controversial idea, and one that has really kind of been one of the most heated debates in American archaeology, especially for many decades. This came to my attention after new research was presented just last week, on Friday, at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, and it suggests that some of the first arrivals in North America might not have traveled over land, the so-called land bridge, over Beringia, back toward the end of the last ice age, nor did they likely make their way across on boats, but in fact, many of them may have walked across the water. No, we're not talking about a Messiah moment here. Instead, the accumulation of ice at the end of the last ice age would have been enough such that frozen portions of the ocean along the northern coasts of the Pacific might have actually been enough for early hunter-gatherers to make their way walking across the ice, and being hunters and gatherers as they were, they may have been following natural subsistence patterns, you know, hunting ocean-dwelling plasticine mammals, on their way along just following where the food can be found, and this may have eventually led them across Pacific ice and over into Pacific Northwestern America, well, long before it was known as America. Now, to me, this idea isn't really all that controversial. It's just a different approach that tries to account for how in the world there could be 23,000-year-old footprints that have now been confirmed down there at White Sands National Park if that long ago, people shouldn't have been able to make their way across the land bridge at Beringia because the ice would not have receded enough. But of course, the water would have been far too choppy. The ocean currents would not have facilitated sailing. So how did these people get over here? Now, it's not to say that some didn't sail. Some of those brave, intrepid ancient sailors may have made their way across the ocean. It's not to say that some later populations didn't migrate when a land bridge would have existed in that sweet spot between glacial recession but also as sea levels were rising, not enough such that the location now known as the Bering Strait had become submerged. It's not to say that there were multiple migrations, and also from multiple directions, because another great controversy in archaeology 
is the notion that the same thing might have actually happened, but with people from ancient Europe making their way across Atlantic ice and over into America. That very concept was the premise of a book written by the late Smithsonian archaeologist Dennis Stanford and his colleague Dr. Bruce Bradley, who I interviewed with my co-hosts Jason and James over on the Seven Ages Audio Journal many years ago. So really, we are still trying to figure out exactly how people got into North America, exactly how long ago they started coming this way. And we obviously still have a long ways to go before we completely figure this out. But one thing is very clear. The ingenuity of humans, especially back in ancient times, never ceases to amaze us. And yes, they were definitely doing things a lot earlier than we once would have given them credit for. You know, following all of our reporting on the current state of the UAP disclosure effort in Washington, it is interesting to note that there's been another batch of so-called Rangefowler reports that have been released by the U.S. Navy. And over at theblackvault.com, my pal John Greenwald has recently written about some of these. He notes in an article there at his website, which I'll have linked in the show notes, that he had initially been trying to obtain these documents through FOIA. They had been denied to him. Later, he received further communication saying these documents had been released and they could be found online at an official military website. As he notes in his article here, despite the file name the U.S. Navy chose for this release, which is 202306, seemingly indicating a June 2023 release, it doesn't appear that these were released to anyone in June. The original request the Black Vault filed in November 2020 was denied with no records. The new request was filed in July of 2022, both cases referencing the original New York Times article where Ryan Graves was first interviewed. Now, of course, like many have probably by now who follow John's work and who keep up with the latest disclosures via FOIA and otherwise, I have gone through these documents and I really wish I could tell you that there's something extraordinary in there. But thanks to the previous classification guide issued and applied apparently toward these documents, almost everything in these reports is redacted. They don't tell you the shapes of the objects. They don't tell you the size. They don't tell you hardly anything except which direction the wind was blowing, which helps us know that these objects in many cases were actually flying into the wind and therefore probably weren't balloons. But really, apart from that, there is very little that can be determined from these documents. They leave very much to the imagination because all of the most pertinent data is blacked out. They really love to keep us guessing, don't they? I guess that's just going to remain par for the course, at least for a while as far as the UAP issue goes. But listen, I can tell you one thing for sure that you don't have to always guess about, and that is making sure that you are getting a healthy diet, especially this bustling holiday season. And you might be like many of the people out there with all the Christmas shopping, everything else going on, who's looking to try and ensure that you get nutritious, flavorful meals that help fuel those holiday shopping excursions or whatever else you might have going on here as the end of the year holiday season approaches. So let me just tell you something that's going to save you a lot of time. Stop what you're doing. Write this down if you have to. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, is going to make your life so much easier. Whether it's lunch, breakfast, or dinner, or just a snack you're looking for maybe in between exercising, if you've still got time for that over the holidays, and you should, trust me, Factor is always going to make sure that meal prepping is easy and also that you can get the nutrition that you need throughout the day. You can skip all that meal planning, all that grocery shopping, all the chopping, prepping, and cleaning. Instead, all you've got to do is heat up one of these ready-made meals, and they're chilled when they are sent to you. They are never frozen. But you heat one of these up in just two minutes, and they are ready to go. And let me tell you, I'm speaking from personal experience. Factors meals are truly delicious and extremely healthy by helping you target different lifestyles and dietary options, whether it's calorie smart, vegan, or veggie, or protein plus, or other kinds of wholesome options that they provide. But remember that I mentioned it's not only meals. Factor also offers a lot of excellent snacks, as well as lunch-to-go options, juices, shakes, smoothies, just about anything you'd ever want. They can make sure it's delivered to you, and of course, sourced with 100% renewable electricity from their production sites and offices. So listen, this December... Get Factor and enjoy eating well without all the hassle. Head to factormeals.com slash micapod50 and use code micapod50 to get 50% off. That's code micapod50 at factormeals.com slash micapod50 to get 50% off. Trust me, you're going to love it. I know I do. And it really comes in handy this time of the year. So with all the news now behind us, 
we are going to have to turn our attention toward this issue of catastrophic disclosure. What does that even mean? And what could it mean if UFO data is released through less than ideal circumstances? We'll dig into that here in a moment on the Micah Hanks program. Imagine a scenario where the existence of extraterrestrial visitors to Earth were revealed in the absence of a plan. What might go wrong? And in fact, if things went wrong, what would that mean? Maybe more than just the breakdown of religions and society, it could be sheer panic. Or maybe it will be none of those things. But many are not prepared at this point to take that chance. And hence really I think why for decades already we've been hearing from scientists who have said we should be very careful about broadcasting our existence to potential extraterrestrial intelligences, especially if they are intelligent enough to have created technology that could bring them across interstellar distances here to Earth. If they were low on resources, or feared that at some point they might be, what could they possibly do to a lesser advanced civilization like we here on Earth? We might not fare very well in the event that these extraterrestrials decide to do us more harm than good. But of course, this is the kind of thing that we've heard the late Stephen Hawking and many other astronomers and physicists and other scientists saying about the eventual realization that extraterrestrials exist, whereas some would say, if indeed, that's what UAP represent. If the really good UAP cases are evidence of exactly what so many have been saying already for decades, that we are being visited right now by intelligences, non-human intelligences from elsewhere, then what happens if and when that information is revealed to the public? And maybe for it to be revealed to the public, there has to be a sort of a system in place already to help account for and mitigate any potential risks that could arise from unexpected reactions people might have to this en masse. In other words, one might put it this way. Part of the broader disclosure dialogue that's currently underway has to do with effectively expecting the unexpected. Now, that might sound like a really silly thing to say. How do you expect something if you don't expect it? But what I mean by that is we don't know necessarily how humans would or perhaps in the eventual sense, will react to the unambiguous realization that we are not alone. And the reason why I add that qualifier, unambiguous, is because right now with the testimony provided by David Grush and the whispers we keep hearing about other individuals who say they have knowledge of crash wreckage retrieval programs and things like this and that they have gone and they have spoken to members of Congress and others about this, they've testified to Arrow investigators, we keep hearing bits and pieces of stories, but we haven't really gotten the full picture yet. And a lot of people, based on how little information has actually made its way out, are inclined to say, well, then this probably really is all just myth and hearsay. You gotta show me them bodies before I'm gonna believe that aliens have ever visited Earth. Simple as that. And a lot of people, understandably, leave it right there because the idea of non-human intelligence, or NHI, really does fall so far outside their expectations about reality that it's not something that they can process easily and certainly not something they're going to worry about. 
And those are probably the very individuals, if it were ever revealed unambiguously, that, hey, we actually have some hardware. We actually have some biological specimens. And yes, we are aware that there are extraterrestrial non-human intelligences operating in our airspace. And yes, we may have some perspectives, albeit limited, about what their modus operandi is, why they are here, what they are doing, and what that could mean for all life on Earth. When that kind of information comes out, and people who were not expecting it, people who didn't believe it, and people who were not prepared to have to cope with that kind of realization are suddenly made aware of it, no, things might not go very well at all. Naturally, the classic historical example of what could happen when this sort of a realization is made and the kind of panic that could potentially ensue is provided to us by at least some historical narratives related to the famous Orson Welles broadcast of a radio drama adaptation of H.G. Wells' classic The War of the Worlds that broadcast on October 30th, 1938, where they had their imaginary correspondent out there, a Mr. Carl Phillips, who's on the scene where there had allegedly been something crash out in the rural countryside, and Phillips is standing there saying to the American people via the radio, I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene, Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us. Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading to the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half-buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. Yes, effectively, Mr. Phillips was describing an imaginary crash of a UFO here on Earth. But of course... Listeners that night may not have at that time, as they were hearing this all unfold during this radio drama, not all of the listeners had necessarily been aware of the fact that this was just a drama. One man wants to touch the thing, Phillips said. He's having an argument with a policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen. And then this weird little humming noise comes up behind his voice. That curious humming sound that seems to be coming from inside the object. And as many listeners are hearing all this unfold and trying to make sense of exactly what Mr. Phillips is describing, suddenly his voice raises, Just a minute! Something's happening! Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, he says, This is the most terrifying thing I have ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something. I can see peering out of that black hole two luminous disks. Are they eyes? It might be a face. It might be. And then Phillips goes on to describe something wriggling out of the shadow that he likens first to a gray snake. Then he describes tentacles, a body-like thing as large as a bear that he says is glistening like wet leather. And this thing, whatever it is, almost seems to struggle against Earth's gravity as it pulls itself writhing out of this hole in the top of this craft with this V-shaped mouth, saliva dripping off of its rimless lips that quiver and pulsate. No, the imaginary Mr. Phillips wasn't describing the kind of alien most of us would think of when the idea of non-human intelligence comes to mind. The great paradox here is that obviously these are technological craft in H.G. Wells' story that seemed to have delivered something far more monstrous to Earth. Or at least, that's how it would have been imagined in the minds of those who were listening that night as this all unfolded over the airwaves, and many, according to popular legend, were scared out of their minds. No, they'd never thought that Earth might actually be visited by non-human intelligence, and they never expected to tune in on their radios and hear a story like this being told as though it might be real. And again, popular legend holds that many people were arming themselves out there in their farmhouses. They were holed up in their living rooms with shotguns pointed at the door. But the reason I say popular legend comes into play here is because, as Slate reported a number of years ago, and many others have also commented, there is some reason to question whether people really panicked when they heard War of the Worlds that night. If anything, it really seems to be that after the incident, it was the way that many newspapers reported on it that really blew this out of proportion and made it sound like there had been mass panic, when in fact there's very little actual evidence to support that. But I think that the example still stands, because I don't doubt there probably were a few people who were frightened that night, 
and probably many more who at least were confused initially when they heard this broadcast and they weren't really sure what they were hearing. Humans tend to go through different phases of recognition and realization as they are warming up to the idea of something that they are perceiving that they never expected, or if they are perceiving something that they can't fully comprehend. Again, our minds tend to try and associate it with things that we might know as we grapple with trying to understand it and assimilate it slowly into our reality. And there are plenty of examples we could give of that sort of a thing, but really fundamentally I think you already get the point. My question is what would really happen if the existence of extraterrestrials and the reality of their visitation to Earth were revealed under uncontrolled, chaotic means? In other words, a truly catastrophic disclosure of an ET reality. And so when we come back, we're going to explore that concept as well as the retired U.S. Army colonel who seems to be worried about this, a gentleman who I have spoken with, by the way. And so I think I have a pretty good idea of exactly what he's trying to convey as well. We'll pick all that up here on the other side of the break. It is the Micah Hanks program, and we will be back right after this. Question of catastrophic disclosure. What does that mean and what could happen if indeed an uncontrolled release of information about an ET reality were ever to unfold? We'll get into that here in just a moment. But first, of course, I want to remind you, if you aren't already a subscriber to the X podcast, you're only getting half of the story that we feature each week here on the Micah Hanks program. And there is a link in the show notes available through your podcasting app or at micahanks.com forward slash podcast where you can find all the information about signing up. In fact, just head over to micahanks.com forward slash X. That is the sign-up page, and that gets you access to ad-free versions of each week's main podcast, as well as all of the additional subscriber content, which is also ad-free. I think that in addition to the additional content, that's actually one of the most important aspects of the subscriber shows, because on your own unique RSS feed that you can subscribe to, so all your shows come to one place, you also get this podcast you're listening to right now, but in an ad-free format, no ads included, and so you have that uninterrupted listening experience, plus the weekly additional edition and the monthly Enigma specials, all that for just $7 a month. So head on over to micahanks.com forward slash X, and don't forget, it would make an excellent gift for somebody right here around the holidays, too. Just one more note also that I want to touch on here before we get into this discussion about catastrophic disclosure, what that means, who has said that, and why it's suddenly become kind of a buzzword in the UFO dialogue online. But as you know, I've been working on a UFO project, a science project, and I am collecting UFO data from people who have observed UFOs or UAP. So if you've seen something mysterious in our skies, I do want to hear from you. Please consider reaching out to me at info at micahanks.com. You can also email me at micah at thedebrief.org. And just to give you one more alternative, I think if you go to micahanks.com forward slash contact, you'll also find the contact form on my website that you can use to email me that way. So any of those methods should reach me. And again, I do want to hear from you about your sightings. It could be very important that we document UAP sightings like these, both for future generations, but also for people today who are trying to learn about these phenomena. So please consider reaching out. If you've seen something, I do want to hear from you. So what is catastrophic disclosure? What does that even mean? 
I'll refer to a Daily Mail article from a few weeks back by my friend Matt Phelan, where he had been talking about a think tank in Washington, D.C., where officials from all the three-letter agencies and beyond, CIA, DIA, the Pentagon, and elsewhere, had all convened to debate the risks of revealing the truth about UFOs. In his article, Matt refers to Dr. Hal Putoff, who had actually been in attendance there at the Seoul Foundation event. I was able to meet and speak with Hal for a few minutes, but Dr. Putoff had come back from this event with the same conclusion that many have over the years, he says, that the societal risks of UFO disclosure were just too great. And this, in effect, is why the information has always been kept hidden and that no efforts to bring about disclosure have ever succeeded. Eventually, the powers that be, at least so we're told, always conclude that it's just too grave a risk. And we don't want to have another War of the Worlds moment, do we? But more fundamental to the heart of Matt's article there in the Daily Mail have been the perspectives offered at the Soul Foundation event a few weeks ago by retired Colonel Carl Nell, a man whose name first came to widespread public attention earlier this year when it was included in an article published by The Debrief, and that was, of course, the article by Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal that first revealed the allegations made by David Grush about the alleged recovery of craft of non-human origin. Carl Nell was cited in the article primarily because, as the former Army liaison to the UAP task force, he was able to vouch for David Grush and his credentials. Carl Nell says he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. He is a great American, a true patriot, and like many others, I stand behind him because we all knew David Grush working with the UAP task force and respected him and the work he did. So that's how the world really came to know of Carl Nell in the context of the entire UAP disclosure dialogue. And as Matt Phelan reported in his article there at the Daily Mail, he talked about Carl Nell giving this talk, which was sort of a high point of the entire event and certainly one of the most interesting perspectives offered by a former military official. As Matt writes, Colonel Nell described his proposal as an effort to avoid catastrophic disclosure, meaning a chaotic release of earth-shattering revelations, but not necessarily just something that happens by accident. In fact, there are several ways that catastrophic disclosure might occur, and one might be, as Phelan writes, designed to sow discord, whether by independent actors or by one of the United States' foreign rivals. You know, for ex-subscribers over the weekend, I did an entire breakdown of sightings of UAP over China. And in addition to looking at several of the country's most famous cases, as well as scientists in China and their attitudes toward the topic over the decades, we also looked at a recent article from back in 2021, which appeared in the South China Morning Post and talked about how China's military is really at their wit's end and they've started using AI to try and help them figure out what these things are. The article refers to multiple different UAP studies that Chinese scientists have undertaken, particularly in recent years and also in the aftermath, you might say, of some of the revelations that are occurring here in the United States. But fundamentally, that article in the South China Morning Post is saying, you know, the Chinese military is as baffled as anybody else, but we've also got a research unit that's on the case, and we're intending to use AI to try and do it more quickly, maybe than the Americans can. So let's assume for a moment, what if China or Russia, or maybe both of them, let's say they're working in some kind of a cooperative effort, but for the purposes of this argument, let's say that China comes across some sort of information. It might even be something that U.S. intelligence officials already know about or maybe can fully explain. Maybe it's something that has been withheld from the American public and also illegally withheld from Congress, like whistleblower David Grush has said. But let's say China comes across that information on their own and they say, well, you know what? We're going to make sure that this is released. We're going to seed this information out there. We're going to let it out. Because we know we can use this, first of all, to make the American military look bad. This will sow seeds of distrust in American government among the citizenry in America. It very well might, depending on what the nature of the revelation might be. Again, this is all hypothetical. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it involves unambiguous evidence of the existence of extraterrestrial visitors to Earth. And let's say maybe that it also conveys something about, you know, concerning intentions displayed by the operators of these UAP craft. What if China releases that information not only to cause people around the world to lose faith in either their governments or at very least the American government, but also just to try and scare people? You can see how quickly a situation like that could get out of hand. 
And yes, of course, we would be foolish not to think that a foreign adversary of the United States, if they had that information and chose to release it, might try to use it in ways that would be advantageous to them, primarily by making the United States look bad. So these were some of the considerations that Carl Nell presented in his talk at the Soul Foundation event, where he proposed what he termed, and this was actually featured on one of the slides in the presentation, images of this were not supposed to be taken at the event, but they did end up leaking online, not surprisingly. But in any case, the Soul Foundation does say that they plan to release officially sanctioned footage from the event. They had a whole camera crew set up there, so eventually this stuff will be released but that's one of the reasons they were saying, please don't take photographs. In any case, some of the slides from Carl Nell's talk did make their way online, and one of them read as follows. It describes a proposed strategic end state with three points. Oversight, which involves restoration of proper federal government oversight over all UAP legacy and ongoing program efforts. After oversight, he has disclosure, which involves prevention of UAP catastrophic disclosure, through successful implementation of all UFO Review Board policy recommendations, more on that in a moment, and then a science objective where transformative technological and societal advancement derived from successful UAP, science and technology, technology utilization office or officer, research development, test and evaluations and appropriations, and NHI engagement. All right, only in those three points, there's still an awful lot to have to try and unpack here. So we'll try and do that right now. First stage, oversight, describes restoration of proper federal government oversight for all UAP programs. When David Grush came forward and said, look, there is evidence of a program. This has been illegally withheld from Congress and from the American people. And so I filed an intelligence community inspector general complaint. And then that actually thereafter was deemed credible and urgent. What essentially Carl Nell is saying is that in line with what David Grush disclosed, we need to restore oversight. The United States federal government, elected officials, right, members of Congress, individuals who we the people elect to represent us, need to have oversight of these programs. This does not need to be withheld. This does not need to be kept off the books. And that's one of the reasons we have continued to see all this legislation over the last few years, including what version, watered down though it was, has passed by the Senate of the UAP Disclosure Act. Even though there will not be that review board that the second point here discusses, there are still provisions that effectively say, unless you disclose your program, there will no longer be funding for programs involving UAP technologies. So coming back to that second point here, disclosure, where Nell describes the prevention of UAP catastrophic disclosure through successful implementation of all UFO review board policy recommendations. Well, we're not going to have that UFO review board because that portion was stripped out of the Schumer Amendment. But, nonetheless, a ideal plan would involve the prevention of catastrophic disclosure, as Carl Nell describes it, through successful implementation of policy recommendations. And those kind of policy recommendations really could come from a variety of different resources. I mean, maybe there could be a panel set up within the National Science Foundation. That could also come from members of the Soul Foundation. That could, and frankly, I think should, also be something that comes from longtime UFO researchers, people who have a lot of knowledge about this topic, especially scientists who have been involved in applying science toward this. So policy recommendations to help prevent catastrophic disclosure, that's something that maybe is not off the table right now, even though that portion of the legislation that would have really helped to try and maintain and manage that is no longer in the works. But then finally, the science aspect that Carl talks about here, transformative technological and societal advancement derived from successful UAP technologies and, and this is important, he says, NHI engagement. Now, that's a really interesting one because in addition to laying the groundwork for disclosure within the private sector, something Carl Nell and I actually talked about while we were out there at the event, and which I'll address more in depth when we come back here in a moment, and then also this transformative technological and societal advancement as a result of whatever has been derived from UAP technologies. But he's also saying there needs to be NHI engagement. In other words, this sounds a little to me like a contact initiative. If there is a phenomenon and there's an intelligence behind it and we can no longer deny that, then how do we establish contact? We'll look at all these ideas and much more here in a moment when we return on the Micah Hanks Program.
avoiding catastrophic disclosure. Is it even something that can be avoided? Maybe management would be a better term for it. Welcome back. It is the Micah Hanks program. While I was out there attending the Soul Foundation event, I met and spoke with Carl Nell. And of course, I also attended his lecture, the very one that's being described in this article. And naturally, I feel that the dialogue online about this really relying a lot on speculation in lieu of many of those talking about it having actually been there themselves and only seeing what they have read online, the slides from the talk that have been leaked in imagery that appeared online and things like this, some of which actually appear in that Daily Mail article, which I'll have linked in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, this has naturally led to all sorts of speculation. And so that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about this. Not only am I interested in the topic and not only did I attend Carl's lecture, but being there at the event, I spoke with Carl Nell quite a bit about everything that we're discussing here. This idea of what needs to be done to facilitate disclosure here in the United States so that such a thing doesn't happen through uncontrolled catastrophic means in the event that a foreign adversary were to reveal information or another possibility maybe would be a leak by whistleblowers or hackers. You know, there could be an accidental discovery that leads to disclosure. There could be intentional disclosure by governments. And yet again, as we've outlined, there could be reasons some world powers might do that that have far less than the benefit of all in mind. It could be done in a way and as a means to try and destabilize governments, which could be a very concerning thing. But while we were out there at the event, naturally, having been quoted in our article, that Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal wrote for the debrief, which revealed the story of David Grush to the world for the first time. I naturally wanted to meet Carl, introduce myself, and talk with him, and found him to be an extremely approachable, very friendly, incredibly intelligent guy with a very nuanced perspective on the entire UAP issue. And so we stood there maybe for 20 minutes talking with Carl, and really what he continued to emphasize was that the passage of the Schumer Amendment would be of incredible importance but that really we can't just kick back and expect the government to release information about UAP. Part of the reason being that they have been concerned about what might happen if and when this information comes out. And therefore, rather than to try and build a sort of support network so that this disclosure could be made effectively, if all the rumor mill that we've been hearing for decades is true. And if allegations like those made by David Grush are accurate, those who are the gatekeepers of this information, call them what you will, the deep state, you know, whatever. But those who have controlled the UAP secrecy in the United States have simply opted not to let this information out. Rather than to come forward and say, okay, it's here, and now we've got to find a responsible way to release this information to the public so that we don't scare them, but so that we can quit lying to them. Now, for the most part, they've just said, look, the chance we're taking would be too great. This would be a war of the worlds type moment. People aren't ready for this. They can't handle the truth, so we're not going to tell them. Interestingly, and this is entirely unrelated to the Soul Foundation or anybody who was there, but many weeks prior to going to that event, I had actually been in California at a private event with some friends, and I happened to be talking with a couple of federal agents who were just in attendance as guests. We were just having fun and having drinks, and the topic of UFOs was brought up because, of course, as a journalist, that's what I cover. And I asked these two, employees of the United States federal government, would you guys, if this kind of information were known, do you think a three-letter agency like the one that you work for would allow this information out? And they said, absolutely not. Our job is to protect the American people and the way of life. And unfortunately, sometimes protecting people and ensuring safety means withholding certain information that if released, it could be very harmful. So this is just speculation on our part, they said. But if it had to do with UFOs and we were concerned that this might have a very negative effect or impact on society, no, we would not let that information out, which I found to be very interesting. Now, coming back to the conversation I had with Carl Nell, he essentially said, in a way, I can kind of sympathize with some of the individuals and the agencies and government who have helped to propagate that kind of mentality, because in some instances, rather than just trying to withhold the greatest secrets from all of humankind, they've really been trying to manage a situation that they thought would be far worse if the information got out. And so Carl's opinion and his perspective on this, as he indicated to me, was simply that here in the public sector, we can already be doing the kind of work that would lay the groundwork for eventual disclosure. 
And so our objective is rather than trying to leverage pressure against government and get the deep state to let everything out, we really need to kind of build a sort of a societal intellectual support network that will facilitate that disclosure in the years ahead. But it will have to be complemented by legislation. Even Chuck Schumer said the other day, along with Senator Rounds, when they were giving their colloquy on the floor that we featured audio from on the podcast the other day, Schumer and Rounds are also saying, yeah, you know, we didn't get everything in this year's version of the UAP legislation that we wanted. And that means that the fight isn't over yet. There'll have to be future legislation that helps us achieve what we failed to achieve this time around. Yeah, there will have to be legislative efforts to try and get what information the government has withheld released into the public domain, or at least large portions of it. And frankly, I think we're already seeing some of that right now. The Range Fowler reports that initially had been denied to John Greenwald, but even though they were heavily redacted, were released the other day. The Department of Energy files that were released the other day about UAP, most of them actually describing drones, one or two of them actually interesting things. I mean, we are actually seeing what I think at this point we can fairly call a slow drip disclosure. Disclosure is happening, but it's not something that happens all at once. It's been an ongoing campaign to try and get more information out. And when we see the two installments of Arrow's historical review that Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick has overseen during his tenure in Arrow, now having left and it officially now being announced that he's now going to work for Oak Ridge National Laboratory, so he'll be just a couple of hours away from me over across the border in Tennessee. But yes, when those historical reports come out, it will be interesting to see what's in there. But all of that said, again, Carl Nell and others there at the Soul Foundation event, and really I think I would extend this fundamentally to the Soul Foundation. The idea here is we need to up the ante on intellectual dialogue about NHI and UAP, and we need to effectively be trying to lay the groundwork for the eventual release of information from government. But we can't just expect it's going to come out. That's something we're going to have to really push for and fight for. There'll have to be legislation. There'll have to be advocacy. There'll have to be scientific studies. But all these things can begin here in the public sector and will thereby enable the eventuality of the kind of disclosure many had hoped for with the Schumer Amendment. But that leads us to a final question, and one inspired by that final point featured on one of the slides in Carl Nell's presentation, and that under the science tab. He's talking about transformative technological and societal advancement derived from successful utilization of UAP and other kind of technologies, but what else? And NHI engagement. So let's think about that one for a moment, because if it becomes established and accepted that UFOs are indeed alien spacecraft and that extraterrestrial beings are present, the response from world governments and the scientific community would need to be cautious, it would need to be coordinated, and it would need to be extremely informed. There would need to be a multidisciplinary approach. Again, effectively, this sounds very much like the Soul Foundation and its efforts, as well as the efforts that we have seen combined among members of the scientific community, lawmakers in Washington, historical researchers like myself who have really worked painstakingly to try and collect information and document data about UAP. Yes, a multidisciplinary approach would be absolutely requisite. But when it comes down to the actual idea of engagement with NHI, what kinds of rules of engagement might we want to follow? Let's look at this a bit. First, there'd have to be the establishment of a unified global response. This couldn't just be one country. Really, this is going to have to turn into a world issue. There's going to have to be international collaboration. There are going to have to be creations of international specialized task forces where committees would be set up within government comprised of diplomats, scientists, military experts, ethicists, and other relevant professionals from a variety of fields that could help to strategize in terms of the formation of a contact initiative. Second, there's got to be scientific study and observation. Before you can make contact, we need to kind of have an idea based on what science can tell us about what this might entail and also what strategies could best be applied. In addition to science, there's the ethical considerations, though, because engagement would have to be guided by ethical principles that don't just apply to one nation and their concerns. Again, this is going to be a whole-of-earth approach that we would have to have here, right? But more fundamentally, as I often talk about the idea of a contact initiative, we have to ask ourselves, how will we be able to communicate? If we're lucky, the aliens have a babblefish. They're going to be able to use telepathic communication or something along those lines, and we will very quickly learn that we can establish communication without any significant hurdles. But, like I said, that's if we're lucky. How do we know we'll be able to communicate with aliens? What kinds of strategies can we and should we 
be applying toward the eventual attempts at contact and communication with NHI. Then we got to look at risk assessment, right? Because in addition to potential risks that are associated with the release, especially the cataclysmic, uncontrolled disclosure of UAP information, yeah, along with those kinds of concerns, which allegedly are what have maintained the so-called truth embargo now for decades, there are the concerns that arise from full-on contact. Has it already occurred? If not, what happens when we do try to contact the operators? And then there are a whole range of other considerations, too, that include transparency, and in addition to that, also how the public can be involved, how the public is going to be able to engage in discourse, which not only may be helpful in terms of the input provided, but also could help to sort of lower the temperature in terms of what the public's response to NHI might be. International legal framework is another question. And naturally, also, we want to try and maintain the idea that if indeed they were here and they're far more advanced than we are and there's nothing we can really do about it, then we're going to have to try and engage in peaceful coexistence and collaboration. So can we seek mutual benefits? Are there things that they can do for us? What can we do for the NHI within reason? Are there cultural knowledge exchanges, maybe even material resource exchanges, but certainly technological exchanges, the likes of which would definitely be of benefit to humankind if they were made known? To me, I think all these things are questions that really must be given serious consideration. And that's one reason I was very glad that seems to have been taking place out there at the Soul Foundation event when I was in attendance several weeks ago. And Carl Nell and many others were addressing these very topics, which are so very timely and I think may be crucial going forward. Now, some might say, look, this all sounds like science fiction. How do we really know any of this is going to matter in the years ahead? Personally, I'd rather not take any chances. There's far too much smoke for there to not be some fire with this whole UAP thing. All right, that's going to be my final word for this week. Follow my work online at micahanks.com and at thedebrief.org. And as always, you guys take care out there. I'll talk to you again next time, and stay strange out there. 